Thank you, Vicki, and uh, you're welcome for giving you breathing exercises that will prepare you for labor here in a month or so. Um, my name is Jay Freimeyer. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you're a guest with us this morning, I'm so glad you've joined us this morning. Uh, please come say hi after the service. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet with you, I- I'd love to meet you and, and just say hi. Uh, like she said, we'll be in John 21 today. And so I'm excited to wrap up this book that we've been in for quite a while now. Uh, over the past few years, my family, our, our family has had plenty of opportunities for downtime. Of course, we all know about COVID and how that shut the world down there for a minute. Uh, along with that, though, my son has had multiple ear surgeries, and each time he's had this surgery, he's had to remain immobile for multiple weeks, which is challenging. So we've had these opportunities for downtime. And so we've used these moments, at least he and I have, to fly through the Marvel movie series at our house. We aren't typically the binge movie watching type of family, but it was pretty fun for me to get into that series with him, trying to understand the overall storyline as it's playing out, as we watch the individual movies and try to understand how they're playing out, uh, learning characters that we like and then learning characters that we like to dislike. You know, we've, got, we've all got our characters, if you're into Marvel. And then ultimately, once we got caught up, looking forward to the new releases as they started to come out. Now, getting into these movies trained us to do something that we had not been accustomed to. Again, I, we just don't watch a lot of movies in our house. So it, these Marvel movies trained me to watch for something, and that is those post-credits scenes, right? You Marvel fans, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, So much so that once the movie ended, no matter how great the movie or how perfect the ending, we we could not bring ourselves to turn off the TV. We had to fast forward through the credits because we're watching at home. We didn't have to watch all 15 minutes or whatever. We could fast forward and see what is next. What is there? Now, whether they were pointing us ahead to the next movie that was going to be released or whether they were tying up a loose end from the movie that we just watched, or in some movies they just would have a silly scene that had no bearing on the overall story at all, we loved watching them. And we we needed to see what the movie creators thought so important to film another scene for. Now, like I said, this is our final week in our book of John. Can you believe it? Some of you are like, finally. There are so many things... There there are some that are going to argue that John 20 should have been the end of the book of John. What more could you possibly need? We've seen the miracles. We've heard the claims made by Jesus. He's trained and equipped his disciples. He's gone to the cross. He's been resurrected to new life. He's appeared to his followers to prove that he's no longer in the grave. And in those last two verses at the end of chapter 20 that we've repeated over and over throughout this whole series, they read like this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, these, the whole book. All of this was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now doesn't this feel like the end of a great book? This feels like this is a little bow put on top and that we're completely done. It does seem a little that way. But because it's not, and because John has decided to add one more chapter, we know it's from John from verse 24, and then the language used throughout is very John-like, it ought to make us perk up and say, what more could be here for us? 
just like those post-credits scenes that we lean in for and we say, what else is there? Because John saw it necessary to add just a little more. We had to lean in a little more this morning and say, what else does he have for us? Now let's set the scene pun intended, for where we are this morning in John 21. About a week and a half, maybe a few weeks ago, Jesus was crucified. The disciples scatter and disperse. Peter has denied knowing Jesus publicly, and it's a dark time for Jesus' followers who are left confused and alone. On the third day, though, Mary approaches the tomb and finds that he's not there. He's risen from the grave a week later, as we saw two weeks ago, here on a Sunday morning, that he appeared to his disciples. He proved to them all, including Doubting Thomas, that he was indeed alive. The darkness they once felt, now is, has so, they've been so overwhelmed with the joy in this moment that Jesus is not dead. He is alive. So now everything that he's promised, everything that he's prophesied, all of those teachings, he knows, or they know, they can be confident, they are going to come true. Now, they've been all over the place the last few weeks, this roller coaster of emotions, thinking he's dead and he's gone forever, but then he comes back to life. In this moment, how could it be better? Jesus is the Son of God. He is alive and he's conquered death. So sometime after this, we're not exactly sure, as I mentioned, but I'm presuming not very long. I'm, assume, I'm presuming anywhere from 10 days to maybe two to three weeks. The disciples travel the 80 or so miles from Jerusalem to Galilee, and that's where we are this morning. And John tells us, that, tells us that there are seven disciples there. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and then two other unnamed disciples. They're hanging out together. We, we don't know exactly what they're doing, just that they're together. But certainly they've got to be talking about what has just happened, right? How scared they were, how alone they felt, how surprised they were when Jesus came back. Would they see him again? Would the previous time that they saw him, would that be the last time that they see Jesus? And yet, what now? They've had so many conversations with Jesus over the last few years and have undoubtedly been given their marching orders. He's taught them. He's equipped them. He's sent them out to heal people and teach others. Surely they know what they ought to be doing. So naturally, what does Peter, the surefire, reliable, trustworthy, confident, always quick to speak leader, what does Peter suggest? Let's go fishing. Of course he does, right? Because that's what he knows. Why would we just sit around talking when we can go do something? Let's go do something. Let's go fishing. And, and the other disciples, what is their response? Hey, hey, don't leave without me. I want to I go too. Let, like, let, let's all go fishing. And John is quick to point out in verse 3, that night they caught nothing. Now, much is speculated here on, on Peter. Uh, people range the spectrum from Peter was completely denying the faith, walking away from Jesus, going fishing, going back to this old lifestyle. And the other side of the spectrum, you're going to have people say, it wasn't a big deal at all. He was just fishing. What harm was being done there? And I think somewhere in the middle is, is probably where I, where I land. I don't think Peter was walking away from Jesus altogether. I don't think that's what was happening. I just think that in the void of that night, Peter went back to what was most comfortable. He, was, he grew up a fisherman, he was good at it, and he needed a way to provide for himself and his friends, and so he went back to what he knew. Why not? But clearly, 
they have a much greater responsibility to the world, right? Having seen what they've seen, having heard what they've heard, having spent all this time with Jesus, I don't think what Jesus had in mind was them spending their time fishing. So Jesus shows up once again. So he pursues them and he shows up one more time to show them that he is indeed resurrected one more time. He meets their tangible needs and then he has a meal with them. They caught so many fish at the instruction of Jesus that they couldn't even bring it into the boat. They were not able to haul it in, verse 6 says. They had to drag it ashore slowly. And then he had a breakfast with them. He had a meal with them. So even though they caught this large quantity of fish, Jesus already had breakfast ready. So Jesus shows up and the provisions begin raining down. They couldn't catch a single fish. Then they get this large haul and they've got this meal waiting for them. So there's so much happening here, but first what I want us to see is that Jesus is showing them he's always going to sustain those who follow him. Jesus is showing us he will always sustain those who follow him. Now their minds had to have been racing in this moment, filled with past interactions. Perhaps John 15, 5, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This was certainly true in this moment, right? They labored all night long. They couldn't catch a single fish. And John reminds us here in verse 3, they caught nothing. I wonder if that is what they were thinking. Or, or perhaps, what did Jesus tell them about fishing? Specifically, Andrew and Peter, and then potentially James and John in Matthew 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw the two other brothers, James and John, mending their nets, and he called them too. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So in that moment, I wonder if they're thinking, oh yeah, he didn't call us to catch fish. He called us to catch men. He called us to catch women evangelizing the lost throughout the world. This is our purpose. Now, John didn't include this account by accident, right? We've seen over and over that he's an intentional writer. He's detailed. He wanted us to see this. He wanted us to know that Jesus is teaching them this night, that he's called them to do big things for him, and they were to walk towards that calling. And throughout the way, he's going to sustain them. Now, just like the disciples, if, if we doubt or call into question whether or not God is going to provide for us, we also lose sight of what he's called us to do. So this reminder is, is just as important for us as it was for them. In the big and the small and the mundane, everyday needs of life, God will provide all of your needs. He's cared for you for everything you need to this day, why would he stop now? He's going to continue to do that. In the bigger picture of your life, what has God called you specifically to do? Who has he called you to be? If we look big picture, just generally for all of us, he's called all of us to make disciples who make disciples. So starting there, how, how are we doing? Are you making disciples who make disciples? And then more specifically, if we hone in a little bit more, our occupations are going to look different, but are you living out what God has asked of you, or do you constantly go back to the things that are most comfortable for you? For some in here today, maybe you just need to spend time in prayer on this thought this week. Spend some time reflecting. Are you being faithful 
to what God has asked of you? Do you believe he will sustain you into the things he's called you into? If God took you today, would he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you walking in faith in God or dependence on yourself and how much money you can provide for yourself or how, how much in control you can be of your life? Do you believe God will sustain you? Do you believe that you can really do nothing apart from Christ? Spend some time thinking on that. So then back to our text. Shortly after breakfast, their encouraging and uplifting breakfast gets pretty uncomfortable for Peter, doesn't it? Jesus was showing all of the disciples something more broadly, but it became clear that he came specifically to talk to Peter about something. Now, we've all been there, right? Like if you get invited over to a dinner party or if you have lunch with a friend and everything's going great, you're like, oh, this is awesome. I just want to catch up with you. And, they, and then they drop the line, oh, oh by the way, have, have you thought about this or that? And then it's like, oh, well, you didn't really want to hang out with me. You just wanted me to talk about this thing. And that seems to be what's happening here for Peter, right? They're having this good morning. They're catching all this fish. Jesus even makes a hot breakfast for them. Like, it's not cereal and bananas. It is fresh fish, guys. Peter's got to be feeling good. And he's like, hey, hey, Peter, let's go, let's go have a talk. And more than that, he does it in front of all of his friends. He doesn't pull them aside, really. It's like, hey, we're all going to participate in this. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 of our text. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So here, John is showing us that Jesus lovingly corrects those who follow him. Again, Jesus had more than one objective this morning. He's accomplishing a lot of things here. And he and Peter needed to work something out. First off, he knew that Peter was the leader. So he knew that if he got Peter, he would get the rest. Peter's the one who got everybody to go fishing, right? Peter was clearly their leader. And in this conversation, three times over, Jesus asked Peter if he does indeed love him. And by that third time, he becomes grieved. Only he doesn't call him Peter, does he? Peter, the rock, is the name Jesus gave to him when he met him, when he called him. But what was his name before that? It was Simon, which he uses here in this text. He's saying, hey, Simon, the old you has reared its ugly head again, hasn't it? Do you love me? My goodness, how that must have stung, right? He doesn't use Peter. He uses his old name. Now, much is used about, or much is made of the, the verb usage here for love. And I think there may be something to that, how, how Jesus uses a different form of love to show Peter's lack of love for Jesus. But I think, really, what, what he wants us to see is that Peter becomes grieved because he, he said the third time, he had to say it three times, do you love me? I think that's what John wants us to focus on. In part, because Jesus had to ask him three times. In part, Peter's probably thinking, why you gotta ask me three times? You, you know everything. You know, you know all things, but specifically, you know that I love you, Lord. But there's more than that. Undoubtedly, Jesus was recalling to the disciples' mind, again, all his boys are present. He's talking to Peter, but they're all listening. 
And so when he says that third time, he's calling to all of their attention a week or so ago, two weeks ago, when Peter publicly denied knowing Jesus at all, three separate times. So when he says it that third time, it comes back to Peter's mind. Oh, man. Yeah. The grief that fills his mind in that moment must have been a heavy weight. Let's go to Luke 22. I want you to remember what exactly happened in that account. I think it'll be on the screens here for you as well. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following off at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together. Peter sat down with them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him, she's like analyzing him. She says, this man, he he also was with him. To which he said, "I, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of the disciples. You were one of them. He says again, I am not. And after about an hour, time has passed. He's had time to think about it. And he does it again. Another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too was a Galilean. His accent gave him away. Like some of y'all are from Texas, and we know it, you know? You got that accent? They said, he's from Galilee. Surely he was one of Jesus' followers. He says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Matthew's account says, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And what happens? Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. My goodness. He publicly denied Jesus three times. The rooster crows, and then they make eye contact. Are you kidding me? Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Of course he did. Of course he did. What shame in that moment when the Lord Jesus looked at him and it clicked in his mind. Jesus said this was going to happen, didn't he? And Peter in his own strength said, no way, no, no. I'm not going to deny you. I've got, no, I'm with you to the end. And then it all played out exactly as Jesus said. And then they make eye contact Wow, what humiliation, what dishonor he must have felt in that moment. He wasn't the tough, all-in-for-Jesus' disciple that he wanted to be. This is what grieves Peter in John 21, when he asked him the third time, do you love me? This is what comes to mind. Now imagine again the shame, the humiliation, the dishonor that came rushing back, the bold inside the tomb first, lunge himself into the sea to see Jesus. This Peter was reminded by his Savior of the way he betrayed him. He's being exposed, and it's happening in front of his best friends. Now, though he was grieved by that third question and what Jesus really came to talk to him about, Peter fills that, he fills the silence anyways, and he responds, Lord, you, you know, you know everything, you know that I love you. And I think there's more happening here. I'm, I'm, I'm certain there was more that was said, and I wish we had more of this account, but I think we can translate this into Peter confessing, you know that I betrayed you, you know, but you also know that I love you. You know that I'm a royal screw-up, but I love you. That's what's happening here. Now, what's, what's Jesus' response? Does he heap 
guilt? Does he remind him of how much he's a screw-up? Does he say, yeah, Peter, that's kind of what you do? Like, you, you are this. No, that's not what Jesus does. He reminds him a third time, and he completes the restorative progression here. He says, I, I know you're right. You're right. You did fail me. But if you love me, then let's go to work. Feed my sheep. Again, there's so much wrapped up in this statement and what's happening here. It's implied that Jesus is forgiving Peter here for denying him. He's covering past guilt and offenses, calling him to look ahead now and move forward with a clean slate. Because I've forgiven your sin, he's communicating to Peter, and you've been given my righteousness. It's time to rise up. Hear this command. You are not Simon. You're Peter. Now go feed my sheep. Jesus wants it to be loud and clear to both Peter, but also the other disciples. This was intentional. I've called you to do something, and it ain't in the Sea of Tiberias. Go make disciples. Now, I think a whole lot of us in this room need to hear that same truth this morning, right? Do you feel shame right now for something you did on the way into church this morning? For something you did last night? For something you did last week? For something you did 10 years ago? Are you walking in shame? We should all hear loud and clear this morning that if you are in Jesus, any shame you are feeling today is not from God. It's just not. Jesus wants to look intently in our eyes, communicating from this text for all of us to hear, your sin is forgiven. It's forgiven. Your debt has been paid. Set your eyes on Jesus and step forward into what he's called you to. Now, I know that's hard. And reason number one that it's hard is because we keep sinning, don't we? We're, we're, we're Peter. We, we keep screwing up. And so we keep falling back into this. I mean, some of y'all yelled at your kids on the way in this morning, right? Let's be honest. Can we talk about that? It, ha- it, it happened, right? I'm hearing one giggle. One person's honest. Some of y'all did that. Some of y'all looked at pornography last night. Some of y'all, just like Peter, publicly denied knowing Jesus in more ways than one in this past week. That exists in this room this morning. Let's just be real. And yet the call of the gospel is the same this Sunday as it is every Sunday. And every other day of the week. Step forward in faith and repentance. Turn from your sin today because Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth, lived the perfect life. He died the death that you and I deserved. He absorbed the wrath of God upon himself that we deserved and gives us his righteousness. So we no longer walk in the shame that we often feel. In Jesus, we walk in his righteousness. This is truth. This is more true than any shame you feel this morning. This is entirely unfair, isn't it? We're often reminded of things that are unfair. I I can often think about things in my life that I feel are unfair. My kids certainly regularly remind me of things that are not fair in our home. Well, how come she gets this or how come he gets this? This is the reverse unfair. We get his righteousness. He gets the wrath of God that we deserved. This is unfair. And it has to be for us to believe it, right? This is amazing grace. We often think that I've got to do a certain thing for God to approve of me. If I just stop this sin or or, or that sin, or if I look a certain way, if I just read my Bible enough, right? Like if I don't miss any quiet times for like three weeks, then then God is going to love me. 
But what does he say? All he really says is, you come and you follow me. Now, Jesus likely does desire to lovingly correct some of us this morning. Just know, friends, brothers and sisters, that this loving correction of God does not bring shame. Instead, it is weight-bearing. It holds our weight up. What you're being called back to in these moments of correction is not do better, try harder, get your act together, workaholism or legalism. What you're being called back to is restoration, healing, repentance, and salvation by grace through faith. Jesus says to us sinners this morning, whether you currently follow Jesus or not, in Matthew 11, come to me. All who labor and are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, if that's all you needed to hear this morning, I give you full permission to turn me out, tune me out the rest of the morning. You just sit in that right there for the rest of the morning, and you, you recall to your mind the shame and the guilt you feel, and remind yourself that God has covered even that. That last sin that you are hung up on, it is forgiven in Jesus. Sure, repent of that, but turn away and turn to Jesus. Now, there's another level to this conversation with Peter that's simply about right priorities. There isn't anything inherently wrong with fishing. Some of you may hate fishing, and that's fine, but some of us do it leisurely. We just go out, and we'll, we'll wet a line, and we'll try to catch some fish, and it's fun. For Peter and the disciples, it was about a way of living. They needed to eat. They needed to provide income for themselves, and so they went fishing. The question becomes, was that best? Was that best for Peter and for the other disciples? Was that priority number one? And the answer to that question, according to Jesus, was unequivocally no. Jesus had a mission for Peter to accomplish, and it wasn't making an appearance on the world's greatest catch. Now, some of us perhaps need to spend some time just thinking about that. Am I walking forward to, into the calling that Jesus specifically has for my life? Now, I'm not trying to send any of y'all in a tizzy. I know this can be challenging for us to think, like, am I, am I actually walking in the will of God? Am I, am I following what God has called me to do? But in, in prayer, in pursuit of wisdom, with godly men and women in your life, asking guidance of the Holy Spirit, spend some time here this week. Are you walking confidently in what God desires for your life? Now, just after Peter's reinstatement, I lost my spot here. Just after Peter's reinstatement, Jesus dropped a weighty forecast on Peter's life. His emotions, again, are surely all over the place because that's who Peter is, but also there's a lot that's happened, right? And here's what Jesus says is in store for Peter, right? He's just betrayed him. He's been corrected, though. He's got to be feeling kind of good, right? And this is what Jesus looks to Peter and he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now this seems a little vague and maybe confusing for us. So John makes it very clear what Jesus is saying. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. 
So by the way, now that I've publicly reinstated you, Peter, and and reminded you who you are in me, what I've called you to do, know that you're going to die on a cross just like me. To which Peter blurts out, well, what about John? I mean, I, I, I got to die that way. Well, what about this guy? Like, is, is he going to have it bad too? It's, it's exa- in the moment, like, it's, it's instinctual, right? Like, okay, all right, I can do that, but is he, is he going to be on the cross next to me? That's kind of what he's thinking here. So here's the final lesson for us and for Peter in John 21. Jesus desires for our focus to be on him alone. Now, on the one hand, I love Peter so much for being honest and real in the moment. Because you know, you would, some of us would have said the same thing, right? Like, hold, hold on now, Jesus. Like, I signed up to follow you, but is, is he going to have the same thing that I'm going to have, right? But this is Peter. He does and attempts big things for God, right? He wears his heart on his sleeve. He's a disciple who stepped onto the water in faith and approached Jesus, He's the one who responds to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the first one inside the tomb. We saw a couple weeks ago, right? John wanted us to know that he's faster than Peter, but he didn't go inside, right? Peter was the first one inside. Peter is the one who immediately jumped in the water when they recognized Jesus on the shore in John 21. He's the one who here in just a little bit is gonna preach at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is gonna use to bring thousands and thousands of people to faith in Jesus. He's aggressive, he's bold, he's confident, he's a leader. But what else is he? Yeah. He's the disciple that fell into the water because he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the wind and the waves. He's the one that publicly denied Jesus. He's the one looking to others and saying, how badly is his life gonna end? Will he have it bad like me? He's up and down. He's afraid of what people think of him. He compares himself to others. What we see playing out is a real-life example of the parable in Matthew 20. If you guys remember, the laborers in the vineyard, right? Jesus tells this story to illustrate something. The first laborers come, and they work from the beginning of the day, and they agree to work for this set amount of wage. And then you've got some who come a little bit later, and they agree to work for the same amount, same wages. And then at the very end of the day, you've got some coming, and they agree to work for the master of the vineyard, for the same wage. Now, it's only considered unfair by those first workers when they look at what someone else got and they say, well, well I, I deserve more, right? I've, I've worked for longer. I've been here from the beginning, so I, I deserve more. This is what's happening to Peter in this moment. He whips his head around. He points at John. He can't help himself. Now, Jesus' response can feel cold on the surface. And it's the same point being made in that parable in Matthew 20. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, this isn't a cold response by Jesus, an unwillingness to empathize with Peter, but more of a declaration that he is enough. Jesus is enough. Don't worry about John's lot in life. John's got his own problems coming up, right? Don't worry about John. Don't look sideways. You look at me. Now, this is familiar territory, right? You know where this is going. At times, I feel confident, bold, assertive in who God has called me to be. At other times, I feel weak, erratic, paralyzed when I lose my spot in my notes when I'm preaching this sermon. We're all over the place. That is us. Rather than walking confidently, 
and who God has called us to be and who God says that we are. This is us. We are no different. It's too easy for us to suffer in any way and wonder, what about my friends? What about my neighbors? What about my family? Why must I suffer in this way? And I believe Jesus' response to us in those moments is what he tells Peter here. Follow me. Follow me. What is it to you if their life looks picture perfect? What is it to you if they suffer differently? You follow me. Peter lived three decades, three decades, with this proclamation over his life, that he would die on a cross. How long must we suffer? Maybe a really long time. Maybe. We don't know. Follow him. I once had a seminary professor who often traveled to speak at various places. And this seminary professor had several kids, I think like five or six. And each time he would return from a trip, he would intentionally return with gifts for only one of his children. He'd rotate through them, of course, but each time he would return with gifts for just one of his children. Now, you can imagine the response this might elicit for the other kids, right? Why did she get gifts we don't? Why, why did you bring him something that you didn't get for us? This seems kind of cruel, right? Like one of the things I do when I travel is like get all the gifts, and it just feels like it's kind of overwhelming, right, when you travel? Like what do I get all of my kids? I just bought you that. The seminary professor, he, he wanted, and you may disagree, this is kind of crazy, right, but whatever. His purpose was to teach the children that not, re, uh, not receiving gifts to celebrate the child that did get a gift. Each time he would return, there would be backlash. But when one of them was esteemed, he wanted all the others to share in the joy that this child had. They were all his children, and he loved them all equally, but he showered with them, them with gifts at different times. Now, this looks more like real life, doesn't it, than us all getting gifts all the time? This looks like real life. Life comes at us quick. Some people at any given moment are experiencing great happiness and favor. Some people in that same moment are experiencing normal, everyday life. It feels mundane. It's just whatever, you know? And yet some people in that same moment are walking through deep darkness and pain, wishing that their days were shortened. And yet Jesus says to all of us at the same time, you follow me. This is seemingly the sternest response we see in the text, but perhaps the one most needed for us this morning. I don't believe there's been another time in history when it's been easier for us to compare ourselves to others, but Jesus still desires for us to hear his voice louder than anyone else. Follow me. So you may ask, why does John end this glorious gospel with three stories about Peter? the disciple who always seemed to act before thinking. Eugene Peterson attempts to answer that for us. He writes this. As John concludes his gospel, he wants to make sure we understand how glorious resurrection life gets lived out on the street by people like us, butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, as well as by pastors and teachers and missionaries. We don't wait until we die to experience and participate in the resurrection life, and we start in our own neighborhood with the people we've grown up with. The second story involves Peter's change of identity 
from a fisherman denying Jesus in the courtyard of Caiaphas to a replacement identity of shepherd conferred by Jesus while eating breakfast around a charcoal fire on that Galilean beach. The third story involves Jesus' insistence that Peter's place in the kingdom is to maintain self-awareness as his follower, not leader in the Christian community. The Christian life does not consist in achieving great things for God, but in allowing Jesus to use our inadequacy and failure to rehabilitate us to a life experienced as grace and love and obedience. Peter's recovered focus on following Jesus to a sacrificial death, undistracted by what others might or might not be doing under Jesus' emphatic follow me, is basic for each of us. The Christian life is not about leadership but followership, not about becoming more and more but less and less. Now, if Peter were with us today and we asked about his life, we might hear it all, right? I bet we'd hear a life full of disappointments and struggles, coupled with victories and celebrations. I bet we'd hear about a mess at times and a miraculous work of God at other times. Doesn't that sound like life? That sounds like what we all live. Aren't we all living a life that isn't quite what we thought it might be? We all experience loss, loss of loved ones, loss of dreams we wanted to achieve, loss of jobs, loss of marriages, loss of what we wanted for our children. We have hurts and struggles and disappointments, and then we find ourselves either wanting to go back to an old way of living or questioning God. Why do others have it better than me? Now, friends, let us hear this morning that no matter what you've experienced in the past, present, or what you will experience, God is still with you. He's still for you. And his call in your life is no different today than it was when he first called you. Follow me. Sometimes this command is easier than others, not because God has changed, but because we have, or our circumstances have, or because someone else's circumstances have. Follow me. You're not defined by what you've done. Peter denied Jesus as he was moving towards the crucifixion, publicly denied him, and yet Jesus moves towards him, forgives him, restores him. And he's empowered him to serve the risen Christ for the next three decades. The risen Christ drove Peter to follow him the rest of his life. May the risen Christ be the same thing that empowers us to live the rest of ours. Let's pray. Jesus, first and foremost, we want to thank you for what you've done on our behalf. But in addition, we want to thank you, God, for this glorious book of John that we get to conclude this morning. We've learned so much, but I pray that you have used this to turn our attention to you, to to be full of joy and thankfulness for what you've done for us on our behalf. I pray that it's made us look more like Jesus. I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters in the room this morning that might be feeling shame for past sin, shame for recent sin, I pray that your grace and mercy is louder than anything else they hear this morning. Lord, we believe, but would you help our unbelief? It's in Jesus' name we pray.